0: Uh 80, 30, and I've entitled our message, Limitless. The last thing a police officer trying to chase down a suspect in a high-speed pursuit needs to see is a warning that their patrol car is running low on gas or on battery juice. But that's how it went down one night in Fremont, California. The police officer pursuing a suspect while driving the department's Tesla Model S patrol car Noticed it was running out of battery power. Well, at least it wasn't a Prius. The pursuit of a felony vehicle started in Fremont and reached peak speeds of about 120 miles an hour on the highway. The officer driving the Tesla radioed in to dispatch that he might not be able to continue the chase he was leading. Officer Jesse Hartman said, I'm down to six miles of battery on the Tesla, so I may lose it here in a second. However, shortly after Hartman called, the person the police were chasing began driving on the shoulder of the highway as traffic was thickening. This prompted police to call off the chase at that moment for safety reasons. The vehicle being chased was found a short time later after it crashed into bushes, but the driver had fled the scene and was not found. Officer Hartman eventually found a charger in San Jose to juice up his car. Police department spokesperson said we have no written policy regarding charging, but the general guideline is it should at least be half full at the beginning of the shift. Apparently the Tesla had not been recharged after the previous shift before Hartman took it out, so the battery level was lower than it should have been. A spokesperson couldn't provide details on why it wasn't charged. Now, I realize that someday in the future my Dodge Ram 1500 will go to truck heaven, or maybe since it has a combustion engine heaven, might be optimistic for some. But either way, the problem with anything new, anything new is understanding its limits. Now, I'm well beyond my area of expertise here, which isn't going to stop me from giving my opinion. But batteries have limits. Some would say batteries in certain climates have extreme limits. They can freeze, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but frozen batteries, I believe, can explode if you jump them. So there's some dangerous things that happen there. So we all know, as we're transitioning in this world from combustion engines to, as some say, coal-fired cars, the challenge for EVs is battery capacity, That's the challenge. That's the challenge. And every time a new vehicle comes out that's got a higher battery capacity, that's projected to be a top seller. It's going to be the next big thing. How far can they go? What can they really do? And it'll get solved to some degree. When Jesus came on the scene, that was the question about him. What's he really capable of? How far can he go? What can he really do? Because there were a lot of rumors that were circulating. There were claims that he was the Messiah, which simply means the Jewish king, as prophesied in the Old Testament. But now there began to be some claims that he might be more than that. And what's interesting is the rabbis of Jesus' day would not have expected any Messiah to also be divine, to be deity. They would not have expected that. We look back in the Old Testament, we see prophecies that seem to indicate that. They did not have that understanding. So now there's some claims that Jesus might be more than Messiah, he might be divine. Claims that he could even forgive sin, and he made those claims. Well, everyone knew, and his enemies said it to him. Only God can make a claim that you can forgive sin. So how could you prove something like that? In fact, how could you prove that you were divine? How could you prove that you were God? How could you prove that you were the Son of God? Well, I think the way to prove that would be to prove that you are limitless. To prove that you are God so you can prove you can forgive sin. And to prove that you are God and that you can forgive sin, you need to be able to prove that you can do anything. That you are Limitless, and that's why I love the passage that we're going to be discussing today. Four stories that are stacked in a row by two of the Gospel writers, Mark and Luke. Four limitless proofs, four demonstrations of Jesus' capacity in different areas of our experience. Now, this is an extremely long passage, and normally when I run into those, I just read the beginning. I'm going to read the ending, and we'll talk about the whole passage. I'm going to read the last part of it. It's in Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 49. So this is the last of the four stories. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 49. It's on page 52 in the New Testament, in the Bible in front of you. Well, he was still speaking, Someone came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But when Jesus heard this, he answered him, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe, and she will be made well. And when he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. Now they were all weeping and lamenting for her, but he said, Stop weeping. She's not died but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. He, however, took her by the hand and called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up immediately, and he gave orders for something to be given her to eat. Her parents were amazed, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Now that is the end, the climax, of this series of four stories, four miracles. Four miracles in different realms of our experience, our reality. And it's no coincidence that the gospel writers put these four together and it's no coincidence that Jesus performed these four miracles over probably 24 to 48 hours and he did them intentionally in these very different realms of human experience so that he could demonstrate that he could do anything and that he was God. And that's what Luke, I believe, is telling us. Three simple points here, and you're going to get a little concerned when the first point just stays up there forever, and you're going to think we're going to be here till one o'clock, and we're not. But the first point is the authorial intent of the passage. We're going to camp there for most of our time. There is nothing beyond the limits of Jesus' power and authority. Now remember, we see Jesus as Messiah and Son of God. And as I said a moment ago, the rabbis of Jesus' day did not expect that combination. They expect Messiah, and when they looked at the Old Testament promises of how God would be with him, they just assumed God would empower him, that God would accompany him. They just didn't see him as God. So Messiah did not equal deity to them. But Jesus was more than that, and we know that. And he was beginning a movement which was dependent upon God's power and dependent upon faith in himself. As God and with that in mind he had to prove to them that he was more than a Messiah so Jesus has been in Galilee sort of the the northern province you have you know Galilee and and Judea Samaria Galilee's to the north he's been there providing a little rest for himself because up there he's pretty famous crowds followed him everywhere he is now a religious star he is a stadium filler Whenever Jesus goes out on the street, he is thronged. People have seen him perform miracles. They do not leave him alone anymore. And it was also time to raise the level of the disciples' understanding about himself. So they head out onto the Sea of Galilee at night. Now, Galilee at night is normally calm. Just like you know, winds typically calm down around here at night, that's the way it is there too. And they were out in a fishing boat. And when we think of a fishing boat, think of a fishing boat that's much bigger than anything you have fished in unless you've been out in the ocean. But we have found one of these fishing boats. Uh, when, when one of the seas in that part of the world sort of dried up a number of years ago, we found one of these boats that would have been used by fishermen in Galilee. It's 27 feet long, six feet wide, four and a half feet deep. So you know, it could hold the 12. And Jesus, it was capable of that. Galilee itself is 680 feet below sea level, so it's, it's well below sea level, and there are 2,000-foot cliffs around part of it, so you've got about 2,700 of feet of drop from the top of the cliffs to where the seabed is, or where the sea, I should say, the surface of the water is, and that is a storm waiting to happen. Because what happens in that part of the world, and it still happens today, is this. The sea is warm, and it sort of bakes during the day. It stays kind of hot. The water's kind of warm. And then at night, cool winds come over, and they hit those cliffs, and cold air drops. The warm air is sort of trapped by the sea, and that creates these great squalls. And so some of the storms that take place there don't need rain necessarily. You just need this cold air dropping over these cliffs to, the, to this seabed, and you have massive upheaval of air currents. And great squalls could erupt quickly And its big water. The sea of Galilee is 13 miles by seven and a half miles. And if any of you have been out on, on big water like that, it doesn't take a lot of wind before you have a couple of different kind of waves. You have the surface waves, and then you have the big swells that start. And this boat is starting to experience this. The storm erupts. First it's big wind, then it's big waves, then it's waves plus swells. And it's in the dark. Which always makes everything scarier. You know, go to a cemetery during the day, go to a cemetery in the dark. Everything's scarier in the dark. They're being swamped. If they're hit sideways with a big swell, it's over. And the disciples know that. And they're literally, these are tough men. Several of them are fishermen by trade, and they were afraid. But what about Jesus? Is Jesus afraid? Well, They started looking for Jesus. Jesus has been performing miracles. And so they came to Jesus. They woke him up. He's asleep in the front of the boat. They said, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he got up. And he rebuked the wind and the waves. And they stopped. And it became calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, And listen to this, this phrase, who then is this? Now they've been with Jesus for some time, but listen to what they say. It's like, who is he? This guy we've been camping out with all this time. Who is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Who then is this? Now, they've been with Jesus. They've seen him perform miracles, but this is a new realm. They've never seen nature bow down to him. He's not a bystander in a created world. He stands above it, and this is one of the key moments where he demonstrated that, that he has power and authority over nature. There's some interesting things about our world, our created world, that are difficult to understand. They say did you know that they say whoever they are they're the experts they say that the universe could be 156 billion light years across think about that the speed of light times 160 or 156 billion light years the galaxy that we find ourselves in is one of billions of galaxies The Milky Way itself has 200 to 400 billion stars. And we're just by one of them and not even a significant star. Everything is so infinite to us. But the galaxy, or I should say the universe, is not static. Now, there are theories about this, and and I believe the predominant theory still is that the universe is expanding. These theories tend to change every 15 or 20 years as we try to understand what we live in, what we're a part of. But parts of the universe seem to be expanding. Parts seem to be contracting into black holes that swallow everything. Stars die. I believe stars are still born and planets are born. But we do not know for sure how the universe maintains its order. Because if you take our universe and and take the various theories to their logical extreme, if we're expanding, eventually that's going to cause a problem. Things are going to get further and further apart, and some of the orbits are going to start getting interrupted. If we get a little further or closer to our sun, we either fry or refreeze, and it happens very quickly. So if it's expanding, we've got a problem at some point. If it's contracting, we have a problem, and that's another theory. Eventually it could contract, and in a sense gravity in the universe just pulls it all together. If it's static, that would be perfect, but we know it's not static. So where is God in all of this? It's interesting that even in a sort of a non-scientific age, when the book of John was written, it says Jesus was a part of creation. Nothing was created that he did not create, John chapter 1. And in Colossians, Paul gets a little more technical with this and says that Jesus actually sustains everything. By him all things consist or are held together. Jesus created what we experience and nature obeys him. They landed in the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the eastern side. It's probably early morning. Storm is over. They step into the shallow water as the boat is sort of pulled into the sand and the stones there on the edge of the sea, and they step into the shallow water, and as soon as they do that, a naked man runs at Jesus. According to Matthew, there were two of them, but the other Gospels only mention the one, sort of the leader of the two. He runs at Jesus. Now the beach there rises into an old cemetery, probably a series of caves built into a hill. So the beach rises into a very steep hill. There are probably caves, much like the one Jesus would have been buried in originally, that are built into that hill, limestone caves. And this demon-possessed man, along with his friend, lived there. He had been imprisoned. He'd been chained, but never for long. It says the chains were literally broken as he had these superhuman powers because he was demon-possessed. And when he falls before Jesus, several things stand out. Number one, and this is actually an evidence for Jesus to the disciples, the demons know who Jesus is. They call him Jesus, which is obviously sort of his human name, but then they also refer to him as son of the most high God. What's interesting about that is the disciples are still figuring out Jesus' divine side. This is sort of newer information. And the demons already know it, and they refer to him as Jesus, son of the most high God. They were in fear because they recognized what Jesus could do. They know that their future would be in the abyss or in torment, and actually they address that with Jesus, and they say to him, don't torment us before the time. Don't send us into the abyss. They fear early judgment. And as Jesus begins to talk to this individual, he calls himself legion. He says, for we are many. This man is possessed by many demons, and legion refers to a group of Roman soldiers, up to 6,000 soldiers. This man was tortured by self destructive behaviors because of what was in him. He would throw himself into the fire, he was homeless, he was naked. And in front of Jesus that day, he was healed. As Jesus cast out the demons, the demons begged them that they could go into something else that was living and there were a herd of pigs not far from there. Again, this was Gentile territory. So they went into the herd of pigs and the herd of pigs in self-destructive behavior stampeded into the sea and drowned. The point here that Jesus was making and the point that Luke is making and every gospel writer is making, Matthew, Mark, and Luke is, Jesus has power and authority over the forces of evil. He can control the forces of nature. He can control the forces of evil. After the pigs went into the sea, those that were herding them went back to the town, told everyone about their economic loss, and they were all asked to leave that part of the region. So they crossed back over to the Jewish side, back to probably Capernaum. And again, they're getting out of the boat People there had been waiting for Jesus, one gospel writer says. So crowds have been waiting for Jesus. They knew he'd gone into the storm. Now he's coming back. They see the boat coming. Oh, that looks like Jesus on the boat. That looks like his disciples. They start gathering on the shore because, again, this is where Jesus is extremely popular. And one man in particular, Jairus, had been waiting there. Jairus was a prominent man in that community, a synagogue ruler. He had one daughter, She was 12 years old. She was deathly ill. He fell at Jesus' feet, desperate to redirect Jesus to his home. Now, Jairus is putting himself out there because it didn't take long before Jesus was rejected in in the synagogues. He wasn't really allowed to teach there after a while because he was a bit controversial. And Jairus is a synagogue ruler. He's sort of like the head elder, head deacon there. So Jairus is desperate. His daughter's dying. He knows what Jesus is capable of because Galilee was where Jesus performed most of his miracles. And so he's begging Jesus to come to his home and so he's got Jesus redirected. Jesus is starting to go towards his home. And then another person tried to get close to Jesus and this story is interrupted in the Gospels. Now this person was more discreet. There was a woman in her mid-twenties there, whose bleeding never really stopped from the moment she became a young woman. For 12 years, her life was on hold. Now, she couldn't just go to her gynecologist or get some advice about how to stop this. There weren't drugs for this at that time in history. I mean, I wanna tell you how this affected her life in ways that we would not expect today. Relationally, it's likely she wasn't married. If she was, divorce was actually quite likely because of this physical issue because intimacy was typically not allowed during a woman's cycle in that culture. In Leviticus 15, it says that she would have been ceremonially unclean, so a woman going through that experience every month is ceremonially unclean for about five to seven days. Can't go to synagogue, can't go to temple. But if you're ceremonially unclean and you touch other people, you make them ceremonially unclean. So she's sort of socially feeling like she's an outcast. And her five to seven days has turned into 12 years, so 4,380 days. She's not supposed to be in church. She couldn't go to the synagogue. She couldn't go to temple. Her faith couldn't be followed. Her dreams were shattered. She can't be married have a normal sexual relationship because of other rules in that culture. So she's 25 to 27 years old in a world where girls marry in their early to mid teens. But she had heard about Jesus. And she had heard that Jesus had cleansed lepers. That certainly seemed more serious than what she was dealing with. She had heard that, that Jesus gave sight to the blind. I mean, these weren't psychosomatic illnesses. These were miracle situations, and so she, she has some hope, and, and yet because of the shame surrounding her situation, because she's ceremonially unclean, she doesn't want anyone to even know who she is, and so she begins to sort of sneak through the crowd, and even as she's touching people, she's making them unclean, so she's trying to keep this quiet. She just thinks, if I could just get to Jesus, if I could just touch his robe, I know there's power in him. I just need to touch him. She starts weaving her way through the crowd, holding her head down, trying not to make to draw attention to herself, and she weaves through the crowd, being as private as possible. She touches Jesus, and as soon as she does, she feels something has happened in her body. Now She doesn't have confirmation yet, but she knows something happened. And Jesus, in a not-so-kind moment, Draws attention to it, drags it out in the open. Thank you, Jesus. Who touched me? You know, if you read the text, the disciples are like, what do you mean, who touched you? Everybody's touching you, look at the crowd. No, who touched me? And there she was. Her eyes go up to Jesus, and she explains in front of that crowd her situation. And Jesus says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Because Jesus has power and authority over sickness and disease. He can control the forces of nature. He can control the forces of evil. He can control sickness and disease in our lives. He has power over all things. He continued on to Jairus' house. But by this time, and with this little interruption... The little girl had died, 12 years old. In fact, a messenger came to tell Jairus, just let it go. He literally said, don't bother the teacher anymore. The girl has died. And Jesus said, wait, no, no, Jairus, believe. We're not just going to let it go. Believe. So he took mom and dad When they got back to Jairus' house, mom and dad, Peter, James, and John, and they went into the private room where her dead body lay, dead for maybe 20 or 30 minutes. Little girl, get up, arise. And she did. And he raised her from the dead. Because Jesus has power and authority over death itself. Nature, the forces of nature, the demon possessed, the forces of evil, the woman with the bleeding, the forces of sickness, the little girl who died, the forces of death. But that's not the point. Paul, what do you mean that's not the point? That's the whole point you've been making. It's point number one. You said it was gonna take a while. No, the point is not that these four are the limits of Jesus' power. It's that if Jesus has power over all these four things, he has power over all things. He is limitless. In fact, Mark and Luke follow this order. Matthew actually inserts some other material between these stories, and it's a story where Jesus claims the authority to forgive sins because the point is that Jesus of Nazareth is God. God. And he is limitless. He's divine and he can do anything. And that's where we place our faith. In that man. Second, Jesus specializes in impossible situations. The gospel writers, when you, when you read these stories, especially in Mark, I love Mark's version of this a little bit more, they each emphasize the desperate nature of these situations. You know, you've got the storm, and what does it say? They all fear that they're going to die. You've got some of these hardened fishermen who are shaking in their boots. They're waking up Jesus. I mean, they are wondering, why is he sleeping? Goodness. They're waking him up don't aren't you aren't you afraid we're we're going to die jesus it's a desperate situation the demon possessed it's explained by the gospel writers that nobody could chain him he couldn't be contained it was a hopeless situation the bleeding woman in another gospel it says she had spent everything she had on doctors she's now impoverished because she's exhausted everything on the medical system and nobody could help her Jairus' daughter well it doesn't get worse than that she's dead These were impossible situations. They are framed as impossible situations by the Gospel writers, but not for Jesus of Nazareth, not for the Son of God. And third, Jesus' miracles and these stories are intended to build the faith of his disciples, and hence us. Jesus covered these bases most would say, in probably 24 to 48 hours. So this series of stories, these four, are in this short period, which obviously seems to mean that he's trying to cover all these bases to build the, their faith in exactly what I'm talking about, his limitless ability, the power over nature, the power over evil, the power over sickness, the power over death, and in Matthew, the power to forgive sins as a result of his power over all things, because he's God. And in several of these situations, he actually mentions faith. Oh, ye of little faith. To Jairus, you know, just believe, just believe. Don't give up on your daughter. When he's talking to his disciples and the winds and the waves are threatening their lives, he says, oh, ye of little faith. He brings faith into this. When he's trying to heal or to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead, who does he take in? Their mom and dad and three of his key disciples. Why? Well, they were his favorite three. We all know that. Jesus had favorites. But he's trying to build faith faith in them, because the church would be built on them. And interestingly, in Luke, the next event is what? Right after this chapter, chapter 9, he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. See, Jesus is building a movement based on faith in him and his power. And he can't send out his disciples, which became the apostles, unless they understand it and are empowered similarly, and they have to see that Jesus can do these things, that he is the Son of God. I want to close with just a few applications here. First, obviously, Jesus is more than a Messiah. Now, to us, this is, this is obvious. Like, Paul, it's, uh, yeah, okay, we're Christians. We get that. But to them, it wasn't. They were growing in their understanding of who Jesus was. After this first miracle, I love, I love how they frame it. They've been with Jesus. They've been on campouts with him for some time now. They've seen him do all kinds of things. And yet, when nature obeys him, what do they say? Who is this guy that Even the wind and the waves obey him. This was new understanding for them. Even though they'd watched him perform miracles, this was a new level. We are connected to God. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Don't forget that. Don't minimize Jesus because he's so familiar to us. The one who calmed the winds and the waves. The one who healed the demoniac. The one who healed the woman who had spent everything she had on doctors hopelessly. The one who raised the little girl from the dead. The one who did all of this. The one who claims the ability to forgive sins. That Jesus resides in us. Christ in you. We are connected to God. Second, we are a part of a movement that experiences the supernatural. A certain archaeologist was digging in the Negev Desert, that's just south of Jerusalem, in Israel, and came upon a sarcophagus containing a mummy. After examining it, he called the curator of a prestigious natural history museum, He said, I've just discovered the 3,000-year-old mummy of a man who died of heart failure. The excited archaeologist exclaimed. The curator replied, bring him in, we'll check it out. A week later, the amazed curator called the archaeologist. He said, you were right about the mummy's age and cause of death, but how in the world did you know? The archaeologist replied, true story. Easy. There was a piece of paper in his hand that read 10,000 shekels on Goliath. Okay, now that's funny. Come on, come on. Thank you. Just even a courtesy laugh, just so I'll study for next week. My point is this: our movement is full of God's activity. I I, I think David was pretty good with a, a, a slingshot, but he wasn't that good. God has been involved in the lives of his people from the dawn of creation. We joined the movement that God is involved with, where the sea parted and his people walked across on dry land, where manna was provided to the children of Israel every day for 40 years, where fire from heaven consumed Elijah's altar in an ecumenical religious contest between God and Baal where a virgin had a baby, where that baby was God, and that God is limitless. We joined that movement. We are part of a miraculous movement. But I know where your mind is going right now because I'm like you. Why don't we see that more? We are confused by the inconsistency of the miraculous, the third point. We are confused by the inconsistency of this. Now, this is sort of where you get various denominations from, actually, their belief about this issue to some degree. And I want to just talk about this for a moment. A.W. Tozer, great theologian and writer, says this about God's power. Anything God has ever done, he can do now. Anything God has ever done anywhere, he can do here. Anything God has ever done for anyone, he can do for you. That seems to leave the door pretty wide open. How about this story? I once met a brother from Ghana, West Africa, who was completing his PhD in the School of World Missions at Fuller Theological Seminary. During one of his trips home, he attempted to share the gospel with several people who lived in his community. Although they listened respectfully, no one turned to Jesus. He later learned that they were intimidated by a witch doctor who lived nearby. The witch doctor kept a symbol of his authority hanging outside his home. So it was a lattice basket, sort of a woven basket, filled with water that didn't leak. And I believe the point is, it should leak. It wasn't watertight, but it didn't leak because of the demonic powers of this witch doctor. And I know some of you are thinking, witch doctor? Yeah, you go to some countries, that's a real thing. All right, It's a real thing. My friend decided to pray that God would empty the basket. He stayed outside the home of the witch doctor and prayed all night that God would demonstrate his power. At some point he fell asleep. The next morning he was awakened by a commotion. The basket was empty. That town saw a mass revival as people learned about the God who caused the water to come out of the basket. There had been a power encounter and God had won. Miracles still happen. I, in my life, not a lot of events, but I believe I've seen the miraculous on the demonic side. And I believe I've seen the miraculous on the Jesus side. Not a lot. But people healed in answer to prayer and anointing. So why do we not experience God like this all the time because there are, there are a group of Christians who feel like man I mean if, if, if Moses parted the Red Sea I should be able to do that I mean like I got the same God okay and, and they look at their Bible and they're thinking that sort of they should be able to do anything that happened in scripture and I want to say three things that are all true And and so listen to all three don't judge me okay just the messenger okay three things that are all true. This is not new, this question or struggle. But I wanna say something about that for all of us. The majority of miracles that we speak of, the majority of miracles that we even see in the Bible were actually compressed in history to some very short epochs in history. And many of our heroes in the Bible actually waited a long time for God to come through for them too. Remember Abraham and Sarah trying to have a baby and they kind of gave up for a couple of decades? God hasn't just performed miracles at will for people who follow him. And most of the miracles we see in scripture actually happen to add key inflection points, major movements in the kingdom of God through salvation history, especially around the coming of Jesus, especially around the building of the nation of Israel and their exodus from Egypt, time of the prophets, coming of Jesus, the apostolic era. So, we don't have miracles throughout church history and salvation history just happening on a regular basis all the time for everyone. We don't see that in history. Having said that, God still can and does do the miraculous. I absolutely believe that. I believe that I have seen that. That is also true. And third, we need to do our part pray and obey, to have faith in God even when we're disappointed because it doesn't seem like he comes through. And with that, I want to close with this. Jesus has power over all of the things that I choose to face alone. Last point, if I could get that up there. Jesus has power over all of the things that I choose to face alone because many times we don't ask God for much. Now, I I've been an athlete much of my life, and that is probably the closest I come to lying in the pulpit. <clears throat> a legend in my own mind. When I was a kid, I was kind of a late bloomer, and uh, and I was you know not picked first on the teams during gym class and. So my best athletic moments, I did play a year of college basketball, six rebounds a game. I somehow remember that. That was, my, that was my glory year. And I was a pretty good slow-pitch softball pitcher. You know, I could, as an adult, I could take a ball and however far away the plate is, I could put a high arc on it, 12 to 15 feet, and drop it on a plate. I could strike guys out in slow-pitch softball once in a while. That's, that's fun. But that's about as good as it got. My Best athletic gift was speed. I was fast when I was 60 pounds lighter. So for much of my life, especially when I was young, benching me was not a bad idea. Keeping Paul on the bench was not necessarily gonna hurt the team. I was a late bloomer, some would say still coming, not bloomed yet. Benching me might have been a good idea in grade school. Benching me might have been a good idea in middle school. Because I wasn't that good. But when it comes to challenges in our life, I just want to give you a little advice. Sometimes we put ourselves in the game and we're not that good and we bench Jesus of Nazareth. say, what do you mean by that, Paul? Well, because we, we often live lives that are sort of independent. Even though we're Christian, we're like, I don't really expect God to do anything. I, I just kind of, I've got him. I've sort of got some you know, some insurance for the afterlife. And But I don't really expect God to do anything with me or for me. He's there. That's good. I love him. I follow him. But I don't really expect much from him. And when we do that and we face struggles in our lives, what we're doing is we're putting ourselves in the game and we're not that good. And we're benching God, because of our lack of faith, our lack of vision for what God may want to do in us and through us and around us, and our lack of prayer that God would intervene in our lives and the lives of those we love around us. Remember who you are connected to, the one who calmed the waves. Nature obeys him. Evil bows before him. Sickness flees at his command, and he raised the dead, and he has authority to forgive. He's God. Let's not put ourselves in the game and bench him. God, we thank you for your word. And I pray that you would help each of us to to not lose sight, even though you are so familiar to us. Many of us have been learning about you since before we could talk. And so there isn't a lot new that sort of grabs us and grips our hearts and changes us. And that's a problem. Help us to remember who we are connected to, the God of the universe, whom all things obey you, have power and authority over all things. And because we are connected to you, I pray that you would be real in our lives and that we would see more of you in every way, that you would change us by your power, that you would use us to influence the world around us by your power, that you would be glorified in our church and in our lives in ways that we can't imagine. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again, and God bless you.